Our text this evening is Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, and we will read through chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now desiring to hear from you. Give us hearts and minds that are ready to hear. Help us submit to your word this evening. And Lord, help me be clear and faithful to your word as I ought to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in Pastor Moody's recent book, it's called Everyday Holiness, I was struck by a story that he recounts at the beginning of chapter 5 with, as I was thinking about today, this message tonight, but also a a talk that I had this morning in our summer forum, this story struck me. It's the story of a son who didn't want to attend church. So the story goes, he's hiding up in his room. It's early Sunday morning. His mother calls to him, come on down, it's time to go to church. And he refused to come downstairs. So she calls back again, it's time. And he hollers back, I don't want to go. I have no friends. No one likes me. You have to, his mother responds. Why, he said. Because, his mother insisted, you're the pastor and you're preaching. (laughs) Texts like this in our day, are 
con- controversial. They're countercultural. This morning, I was addressing the objection in our summer forum isn't Christianity homophobic and denigrating to women? And then tonight, in God's providence, I was assigned this text. Well, all joking aside, though, I do feel the weight and the burden of preaching a passage like this. And that's a good thing for preachers to feel the weight and the burden of handling God's Word. You see, sanctification includes, for the Christian, the mundane. The call to holiness reaches into the most routine, the most ordinary aspects of our lives, our homes. Paul is jealous in this text, and I am jealous as well, to see families, Christian families, living out the call of the gospel on their lives that a text like this gives to us. There are lots of other things to say, but this is our text this evening. And I I just want to also say right here at the beginning that I realize, especially when it comes to husbands and wives and children and parents, that a text like this can be abused. It can be misused. Husbands can take a word like wives, submit to your husbands, and they can take that and go completely sideways with it and completely dishonor God in the way they live with their wife. In a similar way, parents can do the same thing with their children. They can see the command here for children to obey their parents and everything, and parents can then go sideways with that and get into all manner of wrong and sin and evil. But of course, human beings can do those things within any kind of framework, not just this kind of framework. Human history is, is just a long evidence file of that. Abuse, in other words, between husbands and wives or between parents and children, abuse isn't unique to people who call themselves Christians or within the church. It's, it's happened all throughout human history. And I don't say that to kind of just dismiss it as a, you know, not a very serious thing. No, I say it with utmost serious because one of the things that we hear today in our culture, in our world, is that trying to live your life in accordance with God's Word with a text like this just will simply engender more abuse. I don't think that's the case if we listen carefully to what Paul actually says here. But nevertheless, I just want you to know that I know texts like this can be misused and abused. So my hope, my goal, our goal is to not do that. To understand them rightly. To understand our roles that are given to us here in this passage. 
uh, to be for the flourishing of the family and not the harming or discouragement of the family. So I do feel the weight or burden of this passage. I know that there are wives who have been abused by their husbands. I know that there are children, maybe some of you in this room when you were kids, who were abused by a father or your parents. I know that's a reality. I'm sensitive to that. But I also believe that these words here in this text are given to us by God for our ultimate good and flourishing. And so I just invite you to listen in to this text with me as we go through it. The passage itself, chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, breaks down in a fairly straightforward manner. It's nothing too complicated. There are three kind of sets, if you will, that you can see. Verses 18 and 19 address the husband and wife relationship. Verses 20 to 21, fathers and children. And verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, slaves and masters. That's the basic breakdown. This is, scholars call this a, a household code. And there are passages, other passages like this in the New Testament household codes like this, giving specific instructions to different members of the household, were common in the ancient world. So this is nothing out of the ordinary for Paul to do. But the most striking thing that you need to see is that within these nine verses, the Lord is mentioned seven times. Let's see if you caught him. Look with me. Wives, verse 18, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Then verse 22, the end, talking to bondservants, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, still talking to bondservants. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4, masters now, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a, now your English Bible says master, but it's the same word in Greek, Lord. You have a master, a Lord in heaven. So there they are. Seven times in these nine verses, the Lord shows up. In other words, this is no ordinary first century household code. This is no normal Greco-Roman list of responsibilities or roles for the family. This is not ordinary. This is a household living under the Lordship of Christ very distinctly. And that means, among other things, it is a household living their lives grounded upon and empowered by the stunning grace of the Lord in the gospel. The gospel has broken into their lives and it impacts every part of their lives. 
including how they relate to one another in the home. Look back up to chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 again. I just want you to get this lodged in your mind and in your heart. This is characteristic of the new life of all Christians, which is grounded upon the work of Christ in us and for us in the gospel. So verse 12 of chapter 3, put on then, all of you Christians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the description of what We are all called to as Christians now. That's characteristic of the Christian life. So whether you're here tonight, you're married or single, you're a child or you're a parent, in Christ, verses 12 to 17 also apply to you. That is characteristic of who we are becoming in Christ. This is what is to characterize us as a church with one another. Now, why do I say that? For this reason, we cannot lose sight of this, verses 12 to 17, when we turn to the specific instructions for households in our passage tonight as if chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1 existed by itself and didn't have a wider context. That would be a mistake. But this text does get specific to wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and masters. And so we need to see the details of this text. God has a word for us in this text. So even though it's informed by this wider context that we just read out, we need to see what God has to say to us specifically. And just a word to those of you who are here tonight who are single. You may be tempted to think, well, this was the wrong night to come to Sunday evening service. I'm single. I'm not a husband. I'm not a wife. I'm not a parent. You are a child. But nevertheless, this is an important word for you if you're single as well. It's an important word for you if you're single because whether you're male or female, this passage has a word for you should you become married. You need to know something about what God calls you to as a prospective wife or as a prospective husband. Also, that'd be one reason why it's important. A second reason why it's important is 
is because you need to know what the Lord expects of all of us who are with you in this church, who are married. You can see and look for models that will be very helpful in your life should the Lord call you to marriage. So, I do think even if you're single tonight and you don't have a specific word for you in this household, except perhaps being a child still, although it's going to have to be modified if you're an adult child, this is important for you. Okay, so here's the details of the text. Let's get into it. We'll just follow through it as Paul writes it. So, verse 18, the first set, the first relationship that Paul gets into is that between wives and husbands. So, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Just a couple things to note here. What does submission mean? Here's a couple definitions. A voluntary yielding in love. Or a voluntary submission based on one's own recognition of God's created order. Notice what was repeated. A voluntary yielding or a voluntary submission. And that really is what this particular word is saying. Notice that this is not addressed to husbands. It does not say, husbands, submit your wives to yourself in a kind of active voice. That's not what the text says. No, the text says, wives, submit yourselves, you could say, in a middle voice, kind of a reflexive idea. Submit yourselves to your husbands. This is a call for something for the wives to do, not for the husbands to do. That's a big difference. Also, when we're talking about submission here, whether it's the wife or whether it's later for children or whether it's for, in this context, also slaves, when you're a Christian, any kind of submission, and that could include all of us to things like submitting to the authorities as well, like any kind of submission is not ultimate because for a Christian, the ultimate submission goes to Christ. Which means that should a husband be requesting, asking, demanding his wife to do something that would be sinful or against the revealed will of God, the wife should not do that. She should rather submit to Christ. So, those are a couple really important things to keep in mind here. Wives, voluntarily submit yourselves to your husbands. It's fitting, Paul says, in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Because it's, it's right for you to ask the question, 
Well, why is the instruction to submit for wives? Why isn't it the other way around? Why isn't it husbands submit to your wives as is fitting in the Lord? So it's a good question. And Paul gives you the answer, albeit very brief, but he gives you an answer. The instruction is for wives to submit to their husbands because that is fitting. That is what is proper in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? If we were to go over to a parallel text here to Ephesians chapter 5, which is longer than this one, it's more well-known as well, we would read that the husband is the head of the wife. It's Ephesians 5, 23. And Paul, the way he argues there is he says, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, for or because the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, that's another answer. But what does that mean? That the husband is the head of the wife. And where did that come from? Well, Paul is reflecting here and drawing upon the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the book of Genesis, in particular Genesis chapter 2, where we see the, the recounting of the creation of Adam in the garden. The Lord says it's not good for the man to be alone. And then all the animals are brought to Adam. He names them. But none of the animals are found suitable for him. None of them are found fitting for him. None are found corresponding to him in the right way. And so what does the Lord do? He makes woman. And he makes woman from man, as the text says. The Lord took, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, took a piece of rib, perhaps, from his side. It's highly uh, symbolic here. And creates woman. Finally, a suitable fit for Adam. But some things that Paul picks up on in that narrative that he draws out elsewhere in his letters, 1 Corinthians 11, for example, 1 Timothy 2 and other places, is Paul detects purpose and meaning and design in two things. In the order in which man and woman were created and with the designation of woman as Helper, help mate. So Paul will reason, well, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Eve is a helper for Adam. So headship in Paul's thinking is basically that the man, the husband in the marriage, bears the primary responsibility to lead the couple in a God-glorifying direction. And you can also see that in the early account in Genesis of the fall where God comes to Adam 
What happened, Adam? So headship does not mean superiority. Husband and wife are equally image bearers of God, equal in worth and dignity and value and personhood. But there is a difference in role that is rooted in God's good design in creation, oriented to the flourishing of marriage, husbands and wives. Headship does not bring with it the right to demean, to domineer, to dominate. Those would all be distortions of God's good design for a husband's headship in marriage. So just a couple words of encouragement for you wives. Your submission is not intended to be mechanical or static. In, a, in other words, uh, it's not as if you just kind of, I submit, I resign myself to it, and I disengage, and I, I, I'm not a participant. Submission is not mechanical or static like that, but it's rather dynamic and personal. You are your husband's helper. Remember, it wasn't good, God said, for the man to be alone. You are his helper. The two of you together leading a God-glorifying life in your family and in the world. That's a very active role. It's not passive. It's a dynamic, personal engagement and a participation with your husband. And then secondly, I would just say, pray for your husbands. Pray for him and seek ways to encourage his leadership of your family. Pray that the Lord would work in his life. Make him the kind of husband that God calls him to be, which is where we're going next. So, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, verse 19, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Paul will say in Ephesians, that's what you kind of think of immediately when husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. But here, he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he says the negative, do not be harsh with them. Now, I've mentioned to you a couple times that these household codes were common in the ancient world, and they were. But what is radically countercultural in this household code is the fact that husbands are instructed to love their wives. Radically countercultural. Scholars point out that no other ancient household codes discovered thus far have any requirement for husbands to love their wives. This is a distinctive of Christianity in the ancient world. It's explosive. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does it mean to love your wife? Well, you could think about it this way. To love your wife means to desire her good and to desire union with her. To desire the good of the beloved and to desire fellowship or union with 
the beloved. So it means to love. Husbands, love your wives. Pursue your wife's good, even at great cost to yourself. That is what Paul calls husbands to do. And pursue holistic intimacy with her. Not just physical intimacy. Love her as her. Make sure she knows you want to be with her because she is her to you. Husbands, love your wives. Don't take the Bible's teaching about your God-given responsibility to lead her and lead your family and turn it into some kind of domineering subjugation of your wife. Your wife is not your child. She's your spouse. Big difference. Don't let your God-given responsibility, on the other hand, to lead her and your family be turned into a kind of lazy passivity, the kind of classic husband of sitcoms, if you will. Both a kind of domineering understanding of your God-given responsibility and a kind of passive, lazy, I'm not actually taking that up and doing it. Those are both distortions of what God has called you to, husbands. And so, husbands, the model for your headship is Christ's love for the church. I know that's daunting because Christ loved the church perfectly. And we don't love our wives perfectly. But that is our model. Adore your wife. Serve her. Make sure she knows she's the apple of your eye. Pray for her. Seek and find fresh ways to lead her and the family to Christ. That's the call for you husbands. Now, children, we're all children at one level, but primarily this text is addressed to young children, and we have some young children here. Children, here's God's word for you. Verse 20, obey your parents in the Lord. See, I just did it. That was my memory of Ephesians. It actually says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Obey your parents in everything. This is pleasing to the Lord. Children, God has given you parents, as hard as it may be to believe sometimes, for your good, for your protection, for your nourishment, for your care, to model for you how to live in this world. They are there for you. God has given them the responsibility to care for you, to bring you up in discipline, to teach you what is right, what is wrong, and yes, to encourage you and love you. But God's word to you is obey your parents. 
An obedient spirit is one of the most pleasing things to the Lord. That's what it says right here. So you can please the Lord in your obedience to your parents. Now, I know that sometimes gets hard, and they say things you don't want to do. They say things you don't want to hear. One day, you will be a parent, perhaps, or if not a parent, you'll be an adult that gets to know from other parents what parenting involves, and you will gain a greater appreciation at that point in time. But in those moments when you're finding it hard to obey your parents, and I'm not talking, remember, I'm not talking about abuse or anything sinful or morally evil that's going on. But if you're having a hard time, remember this word to you. Your obedience, even in those moments, will please the Lord. It will please the Lord. Now to fathers, or parents altogether, but it's directed primarily at fathers here, Paul says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What's this all about? Don't provoke your children. Don't, don't be too pushy. Don't be too harsh in your raising, admonishing of your children. This probably, Paul says, fathers here specifically because it's more of a general tendency for fathers to be this way with their kids. And Paul says, don't. Otherwise, you might discourage, you might dishearten your children. Your interactions with them have an impact for good and for ill. Realize the power that you have as a father, as a parent with your children. And trust the Apostle Paul here in saying, One of the ways we don't want to parent is to discourage our children. And Paul says that happens by provoking them, making them uh, embittered. We don't want that. Rather, I like this image. Let encouragement of your kids be like a consistent thread woven throughout all of your exhortation. You do need to exhort your children. But over the course of your time parenting them, let encouragement be a consistent thread woven throughout all your admonishing and your exhorting. And now we only have a couple minutes left, and you might be wondering wow, we just made it through verse 21. Great. We're going to be here a while. Well, we won't. Verses 22 through 4.1 treat this other relationship in the ancient world that was part of the, the household at that time, namely slaves and masters or, or bond servants and masters. The ESV puts bond servant here because they want to draw out the fact that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, 
Slaves in the household were also workers in the household. In other words, they had a a very important role to play within the household. And sometimes being a bondservant, quite frankly, sometimes being a bondservant was more safe and secure and advantageous for you than being a free person in the Roman world. That is true for some. So, the image in my mind here is primarily of bondservants who are working in the home, seeking to please what the text says, the Lord ultimately in their service. Paul calls on them as Christian bondservants to do their work diligently, yes, but also to do it as unto the Lord. And he gives them a few reasons. Knowing from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as a reward. You serve the Lord Christ. Fear the Lord in your work. Have sincerity of heart. In other words, don't do your work in the home merely to just show by external works the praise that you want from your master or from the people in the home. Paul wants you to have sincerity of heart. And so a lot of Bible interpreters, pastors, they will apply this to being an employee. So this should characterize your uh, motivation and your mindset and your character as an employee with employers. And I think that's okay as far as it goes. But As long as we know that the employee-employer relationship that we all know is very different than being a slave. So that's not a way of saying this isn't a big deal. Slavery is a big deal. But I'm not taking the time to really delve into all of that tonight because I just commend to you, there's there's books to read on it, but also uh, when we went through our series in the book of Titus, it was the series right before this one, I actually had the passage in Titus on slaves, and I spent a lot more time there developing a kind of biblical theology of how to think about slavery in the Bible and its eventually abolition, its eventual abolition, which I think is consistent with the Bible. So if you want that larger uh, explanation, the sermon's on our website, so you can just go to collegechurch.org and go to our sermons page and search for our Titus series, and it'll all be there. So I'm not taking the time tonight to establish uh, the fact that slavery ending was a good thing. Some people will be like, well, look, see, there's instructions for slaves and masters here, so obviously the Bible thinks slavery is good, and well, we should just have that. No, that's not true. What Paul says here, though, again, is radically countercultural. He's giving slaves, these bondservants, a better motivation for their work, a motivation and reason that will ultimately bring in the inheritance as their reward as Christians. Of course, he also has a word for masters to round it out. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Not all slave masters did, obviously. But if you're a Christian and you're a master, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's powerful. In other words, 
Master, you're going to be judged by your master in heaven. Let that reality shape how you treat your slaves in your household. There are things here that Paul says that just put little spurs in the whole system of slavery that eventually contributes to its eventual undoing. So, these are the relationships in the household. Paul's saying, look, your Christian life, what it means to grow in conformity to Christ, is not just for your life outside of your home. It's for all of life, which includes your home. That includes how you are a husband, how you are a wife, how you are a child, how you are a parent, how you are perhaps a worker in the world. Christ cares about all of your life, and we are called to these behaviors in light of God's good design for us and in light of the Lordship of Christ. So one final question. In all these instructions for us in these various relationships, what about when you fail? What about when you fail? What about when you've been harsh with your wife? What about when you haven't submitted to your husband? You've disrespected him. What about when you've disobeyed your parents? What about when you've been too harsh with your kids? So we're all sinners in this room. We all have failed in these areas and we will fail again. And what about when we fail? Well, Paul has a word for us in this letter, like I said, that grounds all of these exhortations to us and that empowers us to live into these responsibilities. It's the word of the gospel. So look back at Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Well, my eyes just skipped. That was the end of 12. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow. This is getting at the reality of justification. The fact that because of the work of Christ on your behalf, the record of debt that is piled up (laughs) against you in your life was put through the hands of Jesus and nailed to the cross. He took it for you. The sin that you committed in the past, the ways you were harsh with your wives, disobedient to your parents, all the rest in the past and those situations where it may happen again in the future. What about when you fail? You go back to the gospel. You go back to remembering that your worth and acceptance before God is not based on your performance as a husband or a wife or a child or a father, parent, mother. Your worth 
is based on what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You were bought with the blood of Jesus and you belong to Jesus by faith in Him. So when you fail, and you will, go back to the gospel and be reminded of how much God loves you, even when you fail. And then let that powerful realization and emotion drive you to take the necessary steps in saying you're sorry, asking for forgiveness. There's no mistake that Paul goes on in the next chapter to say part of what you need to do in the church is if one has a complaint against one another, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. If that's true in the church with all of us here, how much more so in the context of a marriage, in the context of a home? And that power to forgive comes from, from, comes from remembering how you've been forgiven yourself. So this is the Lordship of Christ for us at home. May the Lord give us the strength to live this way and please Him. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help here to live into these exhortations that You have for us. Sometimes goes against our nature. We thank You for what You have done for us in Christ and we pray that You would remind us of that and empower us by that to live our lives according to your word for your glory and then for our flourishing and our good. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.